Thank you very much. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 17. As you know, we have been in the book of Proverbs for uh, quite a while now, working our way through it. And last week, we saw how the book of Proverbs fits doctrinally uh, and to us inspirationally. We're kind of going back and forth, showing you. You know, I told you many, many times, and most people really uh, go through their whole lives and never understand this one crucial aspect of the Bible. And that is that the Bible will fill uh, three gaps for you. It'll provide three things for you. You know, when God made time, He made time in a, in a three-point process, past, present, and future. And when He gave us the Bible, <clears throat> He gave us a Bible that follows that same three-point process. And so your Bible is going to have a historical application to it. That's something that actually took place in history. It's going to have a a, what we call a doctrinal application that will relate to something in prophecy in the future. Much of your Bible is that. And then, of course, the Bible is going to have an application for now, your everyday living. And we know that to be the practical application. And I told you this Thursday night when we were looking at some other things on Thursday night. You know that uh, many of the principles that are found in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel are principles that fit in your life and my life. I know that there's hundreds of hundreds of years between the two, but you know the principles for uh, us are the same. I told you Thursday night that uh, in Exodus chapter four, uh, the Bible uh, calls the nation of Israel his son, and yet he calls you and me in First John chapter three as individuals his son. So the principles are going to apply many of them across the board. Not always the direct application of what tells them to do. But the overall principles of life will always be the same. And that's because God's principles of life uh, will fit uh, any dispensation. It never changes because uh, human nature never changes. Human nature is the same in 4004 B.C. as it is in 2016 A.D. Human nature never changes. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a profile of human nature that, <clears throat> that we try to uh, get you to understand in dealing with people. There are set patterns by which people do things. And they're all laid out in the Bible. When you learn those patterns, you can sit down in any scenario with any person, with any problem, and deal with it in an understandable, logical way, simply based on the fact that uh, you're following the patterns. And uh, really, when we talk about the people ministry on Saturday, when we meet, that's really what it was designed to do. We started in Genesis and are working our way through simply laying out every pattern of human nature through every example in the Bible that actually gives us a workable, understandable cause and effect of why this person went through what they went through, how they got into it, why they got into it, the things to look for uh, to see them into it, and then obviously the process to get someone out of it. You know, the FBI, as other great law enforcement organizations, they put a lot of stock in, in what they call profilers. And they'll have whole sections of people who are just nothing more than FBI profilers. If a kid gets abducted or somebody gets murdered or somebody some heinous crime that's outside the ordinary, a profiler goes to work on it. He looks at the crime scene, he looks and he knows from past data what kind of people do these kind of crimes the way they do it. And without ever knowing who did it, without ever knowing the person's name, 
they begin to put a profile together that will tell them what they're dealing with and what they should be looking for. Bible's the same way. When you sit down and work with somebody and their problems, whether it's their marriage, their individual life, or whatever it may be, they're following a profile. That profile is very clearly laid in the Bible. If you and I spend the time to learn the patterns of human nature in the profile, that's how you really help and work with people. And that's been my goal with so many of you to really help you try to get to that point in your life. Now, today, uh, we're going to look at our next set of verses here. And it'll be Proverbs chapter 17. We'll pick it up in verse 8 and come down through verse 11. Let me read it for you. It says this. A gift is as a precious stone in the eyes of him that hath it. Whithersoever it turneth, it prospereth. He that covereth the transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth the matter separateth very friends. A reproof entereth more into a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. An evil man seeketh only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger shall be sent against him. Now we will get uh, many, many principles out of here that you can add to your list. And again, we'll begin to be able to put together some of the profile. Joe Christensen, if you'd stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning, I sure would appreciate it. Dear God, thank you for this time that we can get together, Lord, as your people and gather together and hear your word, God, and help us to uh, not only hear it, but to understand it and then uh, apply it to our lives, God. Be with Pastor Bob as he delivers the message today, Lord. Uh, let us be attentive and have a quiet heart and open mind, Lord, so we can receive your word. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Now we're going to look at these verses <clears throat> one at a time and kind of take them apart. And I'm going to show you how they all work. Let's look at verse 8 first here. It says, A gift is as a precious stone in the eyes of him that hath it, whithersoever it turneth, it prospereth. Now this is a great verse, and there's three fundamental aspects to it that I want to I want to kind of show you this morning. First of all, we have a precious stone. We know that that would be likened to a diamond or a, a ruby or an emerald, something that is very uh, expensive, something that is very precious. Now in our text here, where it says a gift is as a precious stone, this will be the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't have that in your Bible already. And uh, we know that from Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, and Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, Matthew 21, 42, other many places in the Bible, we know that the Bible says that Christ was the stone cut without hands. What does that mean? It means that He is a rock and a stone that was cut without hands. The virgin birth. There was no human hands involved in His in his uh, coming into the world. And the Bible makes it very clear that he was God's stone, his precious stone, who became the chief cornerstone of the nation of Israel and in time, everything that existed. So that's the first thing I want you to put in there if you don't have that in there. The second thing, it says, uh, in the eyes of him that hath it. Now that will be somebody who, who recognizes and understands what they have. Most of God's people today, the reason, very simply, they have the problems they have, they have the issues they have in life, is because they have failed to understand and recognize what they have sitting in your lap this morning in the Word of God. And that would be the wise men of Proverbs. Somebody understanding and, re and realizing what they have. Then the third thing, it says this, uh, Whether uh, soever it turneth, it prospereth. 
like a precious stone, whether a diamond or an emerald or a ruby. This gift that God has given us never loses its value. In fact, you can carry it with you all the rest of your life and its value will never diminish. If anything, the value will get bigger. But wherever you go in life, whatever your needs are in life, you will never run out of what you need to get you through what you're going through. You can have thousand dollars, a million dollars, ten million dollars in your pocket. Sooner or later, you're going to run out of money. But when it comes to the precious gift that God has given us, like into a diamond, like into a ruby, a precious stone, it only gets better. And wherever you go in life, you carry that with you and your life is never out of gas and you have everything you need to get through it. That's the concept of, of what he's saying here. Now, uh, I, I want you to, uh, I, I want to talk to you about uh, four gifts that God has given us. Uh, I kind of laid out that verse. Now I want to go back and I want to talk about four fundamental gifts that God has given us. And how those gifts not only have impacted the world, I think that's very important, but also how it impacts your life and my life. Now, I want to talk about the value of them based on what I just said. And having them in your life, in the life of your family. Now I know as a Christian we have the concept of spiritual gifts, which is laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. Those are the three great chapters on it. But I'm not talking about that today. I'm not talking about gifts that you get after you got saved. Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 2 talks about the gifts that God gave to men. I'm not even talking about that today. I'm talking about the gifts that God gave us that got us saved and gave us and put us right where we are at. And then the other gifts will come in once you understand and have these four fundamental gifts in your life. Our job is simply this. Our job is simply this when it comes to these four fundamental gifts that I want to talk about. First of all, we need to find the gifts. Second of all, we need to understand those gifts. And thirdly, we need to apply those gifts to everything that we do. You know in life it's so true, especially when you get married. People, and on your birthday too, people will give you gifts that you never use. And you'll say, why in the world did they get me that? We got a, a, a neighbor lady down the street who's one of the nicest people on the planet and she gave us as a gift a set of wind chimes. <laughs> Do I look like a wind chime person to you? <laughs> Stepping out in the dark and hearing tinkling glass is not what I'm looking for. And she meant everything by it, but it never got hung up. I guarantee you. I, I played with Barb a little bit and said, I want to put this right on the front door so people can see it, and that didn't go over very well. I had no intention to. But you know, there's things that people will give you that you just never use. Some of you have gotten, some of you guys have gotten ties that you just looked at and wanted to go throw up when you saw them, you know? You got shirt that didn't fit. You got cologne that smelled like it was on the backside of the planet someplace, you know? And it's just stuff that you, you we get stuff when you get married. You get nine toasters, you only need one. And, you know, you get all kinds of things in life that you wonder why in the world somebody got this for you, and you never use it. But you know that's exactly the way a lot of God's people are with the gifts that God gave them. Amen. They never fully understand and appreciate the value of this. Now, I want to talk about, as I said, not only how these gifts impacted you, but I want to talk to you how they impacted the world. 
I want to give you a panoramic view today because God wasn't, even though God came down and He saved me and He saved you, God's larger picture was for God so loved the world. And I don't know of anything, anytime, anywhere, any place that changed the course and the direction of the world more than these four gifts. And after it changed the world, changed you and me. So the first thing I want to talk about is the first gift is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15 says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. You know, when you're going to talk about God coming down and die, giving us the, His Son and His Son leaving the throne of glory and coming, that's hard to even fathom, isn't it? Let alone speak about it. Amen. It's an incredible thing. Second Corinthians chapter 9 is a great chapter on giving. Everybody who ever wants to squeeze a nickel out of their congregation will go to Second Corinthians chapter 9. Because it talks about here how that they were taking up a collection and they were taking up this and they were doing that. Every pastor that wants to get an offering and get his people to give will, and wants to really work on them will go to that passage. And yet, at the end of that passage, he puts it into context on the aspect of giving. After he goes through and shows the great attitude of the, of the people who took up the offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem and how they give up liberally out of what they didn't have themselves. You know what context he puts it in at the end of the chapter on your giving and my giving? He simply says, thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. God never asked you to give anything back to Him before He gave you the most precious gift this world could ever give you. His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. No man changed the course of the world more than this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. When I stop and think about planet Earth and God injecting Himself into His creation, you know, I look at that, and, 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 and here's, what, here, here's what this first gift did. Four incredible uh, world-changing things, just in His first gift alone. The first thing that happened when He gave us His Son is a day was declared. That day is the first day of the week. You know, I'm not a Muslim, and and, uh, and uh, most of you not either, but uh, even the Muslims know what Sunday is. I bet there isn't one of you in here that can name off the holy days of the, of the Muslim faith. Who cares? It, 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 it never made an impact. It only makes an impact into somebody that is a Muslim. But wherever you go in this world, wherever you go in this world, everybody knows that Sunday is a special day. Everybody knows that you're supposed to go to church on Sunday. Everybody, and it's laid out in the Bible in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and Mark 16. They met the first day of the week, that's Sunday. And when, when he came down, the first thing he did, a day was declared. We think of Memorial Day. Everybody knows what Memorial Day means. You don't have to tell somebody what Memorial Day is. We know what July 4th is. Everybody understands it. We expect it. Well, just like those days are to us as Americans, special days, when God came down and gave the precious gift to His Son, it changed the world, and from that point on, the whole world recognized that first day of the week as a special day. It's incredible what He did. I'll tell you the next thing that happened. A name was given. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. There's no other name like the name of Jesus. 
I mean, you know what? If you went into Congress and you went into the Senate or you went into someplace in Washington and you were asked to lead in prayer, they don't care in the world today if you talk about God. Because God could be anything. You go to uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or, or Narcotics Anonymous and you get into their 12-step program, they'll talk about your higher power. That could be anything. You know, God is, is really not a, a, a great... Blase, it's offensive to nobody because you can make God whoever you want it to be. You can make your higher power whatever you want it to be. But you take the name of Jesus Christ, you can't make it anything but what He is. So they don't want to hear that name. In fact, you have to submit your prayer and have to have it approved. And you cannot pray in the Congress, the Senate of the United States of America. You cannot use the name of Jesus Christ for offending somebody. If I ever got a one-shot deal, I'd turn in something they want me to say and I'd get up and say whatever I wanted to say. It'd be my last shot, but it would be a good one. There's no other name that's either loved on this earth or hated on this earth. We talk about it with the blessings of God and the, and the love of God and there's other people that take it as a curse word they want to add authority to what they want to say and they drag it down into the gutter. It's either one or the other. No other name in history of the world has polarized the world like the name Jesus Christ. Wherever you go. Wherever you go. You talk to a Muslim and he'll say that he was a prophet but Muhammad was the son of God. You talk to a Jew and say the name of Jesus, he'll spit when you say it. You talk to a dear old saint of God in the hospital or somebody that loves God and loves the Word of God that's walked with Him all their life, there's no more blessed name that they want to hear on this planet than the name of Jesus. Incredible. Incredible. I'll tell you the next thing He did. A testimony was proclaimed. You know, if you're saved here this morning, we all have a testimony. And the thing that you want to do or not do, the thing you want to not do is lose that testimony. And you know what? We all do it from time to time. You know, you 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 get at work and it gets frustrating, you know. And you, you, I've had people call me on the phone and say, "Bob, I really blew it today. I just lost my testimony." I say, "I get it. Here, hang, hold on. I'll lose mine so you don't feel lonely." <laughs> we all lose it. And a testimony for you and me who really loves God and loves the Word of God. When you go to work or you're around people and you can't give them a tract or you can't give them the Bible or you can't preach to them or witness to them. You know all you got is your testimony? That's right. That's right. You know some of you people got saved this morning and you're in church today and you're on your way to heaven Amen. because nobody ever gave you a track. Nobody ever witnessed to you. Somebody just lived the life before you that you saw was different than the one that you had. Amen. It's important. And you know, I think about your testimony and my testimony and you having a testimony and you having a testimony and I remember all of us having a testimony. But we never stop and think about Jesus Christ had a testimony. He did. He did. And when you get over there in the book of Revelation, it becomes it becomes quite clear. He, he gets in there and he says, he talks about in Revelation chapter 1 verse 2, he talks about the testimony of Jesus Christ. I mean, I know I've blown mine. I know you've blown yours. How did Jesus blow his? You ever stop thinking about that? Well, let me tell you how he, he would blow his. He never will, but let me tell you if he did, let me tell you how he'd do it. 
Because Revelation chapter 19, verse 10 simply says this, that the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, when that Bible says something's going to happen, that is His testimony on the line. When it, if it doesn't happen, you know He just lost His testimony. The testimony of Jesus Christ is His ability through that Bible to tell you what's going to take place, what's going to transpire 600,000 years before it happens and will come to pass right on that day. I got saved when I was younger, or got right with God when I was younger as a, a, a young guy just out of the army. I was going to Kent State University. And uh, a couple of guys were Christians there, and I was into astronomy and into science, and they pulled me aside one day. They hadn't known me before. In fact, they went to the church that I later went to. And they pulled me aside, and they said, we want to show you something. We want to show you, uh, we want to show you something. If, if we know you're into science. And he was doing his thesis paper on it. And he showed me that in the Old Testament, there were 48 prophecies given about the Lord Jesus Christ. Those prophecies were given by over 30 different authors. Those prophecies were given over the space of six, seven, eight hundred years. And what he showed me was that, that at the first coming of Christ, Every one of those 48 prophecies came to pass. Now, it would be like me doing this. It would be like me standing here right now today and saying, 500 years from now, there's going to be a guy who lives in, in St. Charles County, Missouri, over outside of St. Louis. When he's 33, he's going to move into town. He's going to live at 3543 Walnut Street. He's going to live there until he's 20, and then he's going to move to such and such apartments, and then when he gets out of that, he's going to work here, he's going to go to school here, give you the name of the place, who his bosses are, who he's going to work for, and then on 40, 50, 60 years after he's born, on such and such a day, give you the date, he's going to walk across Elm and Main Street, get hit with a car, and he's buried in West Lawn Cemetery, Plot 28, row number 6. What would be the chances of every one of those things that I just said coming to pass, giving a prophecy on a man that is 500 years out. Well, that's what these 48 prophecies did. And they brought me to it and they said, do you know what the mathematical chances against 48 prophecies about one man given 600 or 1,000 years before he was born, do you know what the statistical mathematical probability is of those things not happening? I said, no, I don't. He says it's 10 to the, 40, 10 to the 147th power. And then he said to me, there are not that many electrons in the universe. There are not 10 to the 147th power electrons in the universe. And yet, at the first coming of Christ, every one of those prophecies came true. Every one of them. Every one of them. All 48. I got them listed in the back of my Bible. All 48. And the chances against it was more than the electrons in the universe. But God's Son's testimony was on the line. You know what you got in Deuteronomy chapter 18? When you know your Bible? They had the same problem you and I have got today. There was a lot of false religions back then too. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, they're asking, they're saying, hey, we got all these people out there that are saying God is this and God is that and God is here and God is there. How do we know who's the true prophet? You know what the Bible says? You know what Moses said? He says, here's how you know. The prophet that speaks something in God's name when it doesn't come to pass, 
That's not the Lord's prophet. He says, you know it's of God when He says it's going to happen and it comes to pass. You know how many religions that we are all associated with, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, have claimed back in the 1800s the day and the month that Christ was coming and He never showed up? Ends it for you if you believe your Bible. So not only was a day declared, not only was a name given, not only was a testimony proclaimed, but a year was given. Psalm 65 verse 11 says, Thou crownest the years with thy goodness. Oh, amen. You know that all history is built around the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything before that cross is B.C., before Christ. Everything after the cross is, is A.D. Most people think that means after death. It doesn't. It's Latin, which simply means in the year of our Lord. In other words, this. Once Christ came and went back to heaven, every year, whether you're saved, you're lost, you're an evolutionist, or a pagan, every year of your life you look at before the cross, B.C., and you look afterwards in the year of the Lord. That this may be the year that He crowns that year with His glory. Amen. Now you know what? Every atheist, every religionist, every person who denies God, every person who lives his life or her life outside the Word of God, everybody, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you get this. It doesn't matter whether you believe the Bible is the Word of God or not. It doesn't mean that, it doesn't matter if you believe that Christ is here or not. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. It does not change the fact that the whole world does. Amen. You're stuck with it. Amen. You ain't going anywhere. Neither is He. Now, our second gift. Our second gift is salvation. Amen. How God changed the world. How God changed your life. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Amen. Oh, the mighty God that God did span at Calvary. Amen. His plan for you and me. His plan for you and me. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a gift. That's one of the great pivotal verses that I use in dealing with people. I'll take them to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and Romans chapter 10, and I'll show them how that they're sinners. And then I'll take them to Romans chapter 6, and I'll say that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God eternal life. It switches it from where you're a sinner and points you toward the gift that God gave to man. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace are you saved through faith and not not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not a work that any man should boast. Man thinking that he can actually do something to get eternal life. That he can keep some set of rules. He can keep some standard. I know people out there that say, Well, I keep the Ten Commandments. Nobody kept the Ten Commandments except Christ. And you're really mistaken because God never gave the Ten Commandments for anybody to keep. God gave the Ten Commandments to show you and me how far we fell short of what God expected. That's right. Amen. Preach, preach it. Good to your fellow man. The Bible says there's none to do with good, no, not one. I follow the golden rule. I go to church. I try to do right. The Bible says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the Son of God. You know where we would be today in this life? without these first two gifts. We would be wandering through life 
we'd be wandering in the darkness. We wouldn't have the good times that we have together. We wouldn't see the good hand of God in your life and your family in this church. Amen. God's love for His creation. Third gift. How this one impacted the world. Holy Spirit of God. In the Bible, the definitive chapter on the Holy Spirit of God will be found in John chapter 16. Long before Christ died on the cross, we were told of a promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit of God in places like John 14 and, and John 15, John 16. When Peter talked to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he told them that the Holy Ghost, uh, the Holy Spirit was the gift of God. And in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, that gift actually came. The Holy Spirit of God showed up. Now in John chapter 16, which is the definitive chapter on the Holy Spirit of God, there's seven things that the Holy Spirit of God does, three to the world, four to you. And in John chapter 16, verse 8, here's what he says, the first three are to the world. It says that when the Holy Spirit of God comes, He's going to reprove the world of sin. <coughs> that He's going to convict people about the lifestyle that they live up against His holy standards. The second thing is, it says that He's going to reprove the world of righteousness. That means He's going to show them who Jesus Christ is and why their righteousness is no good and only the righteousness of Jesus Christ can get them saved. The third thing He says, He's going to reprove them, approve the world of judgment. That means He's going to, first of all, tell them they're sinners. Second of all, tell them that Jesus Christ came down and died for them. That's their righteousness. And thirdly, He's going to tell them, if you don't get saved, I'm going to judge you. Then in John 16, verse 13 and 14 and 15, these four are to you and me. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God leads and guides us to all truth. He illustrates and shows us and guides us in everything that we do. It says in verse 13, along with that, that He shows us prophecy. He shows us what's going to come. In verse 14, it says that the Holy Spirit of God glorifies Christ. Holy Spirit of God seeks nothing for Himself. He exists for one purpose, that is to glorify God and glorify Christ. And in verse 15, I think this is probably one of the greatest things that it does. Uh, it shows you and me what's really of God and what's really not through the wisdom and understanding of the Word of God, through the profiling that the Word of God does, not only just people, but world events. Now the fourth gift, the final change the world of before God's coming, was the Word of God that He's given us. Amen. Now, to me, it's the final gift that completes my life. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, talking about there that somebody had tasted the heavenly gift, tasted the good Word of God. The Word of God is God's love letter to you and me. It's a gift. You see, God gave me His Son. That showed me He loved me. God gave me His salvation. That showed me He wanted to save me. God gave me His Holy Spirit. That means He sealed me. And then God gave me His Word. And His Word was His mind. We have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To guide me to lay out God's unfolding plan for the universe and for all of eternity. You know, in the Bible, God has three plans. Three basic fundamental plans. NASA, SETI, Hubble, Carl Sagan, they can't get it. None of the educated crowd can get it. None of the scientific world can get it. 
But I get it. And I didn't go to MIT to get it. I didn't go to Carnegie Institute of Technology to get it. I didn't sign up with NASA for their space program to get it. You know where I can get it? You know where you can get it? You can go to a Dollar General store and buy a King James Bible for a buck and you can get it. My, my. God has a plan for the universe. You'll find that the beginning of that plan in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. We've talked about it many times. God has a plan for the earth. You'll find it, the beginning of it, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, where he tells you that the earth was formed to be inhabited. Only planet. And then God has a plan for you and me. God has a plan for the universe. God has a plan for the earth. And God has a plan for you and me. We all exist in one, yet we're all separate, yet all three of them go together. God has a plan for me and you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, 7. And He hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. My, my. The gift. The gift. The gift of being able to read God's very mind. <laughs> The gift to you and me. Somebody says, well, that's just the Bible. No, 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 no. This is God's mind. When God wrote it and gave it to man, He put every thought that is in His heart and mind in this book so you and I could read it to know God. We talk about knowing God, knowing God. How do you get to know God? You get to know Him by understanding His mind. A book that will tell you how He thinks about everything. A book that will tell you how he feels about everything. A book that will tell you what he loves. Amen. A book that will tell you what he hates. Mm. A book that will tell you how to look at all things. Amen. Nothing held back from us when you get this mind in us. Because you get wisdom and understanding, as Proverbs says. And you know what? Without a degree. Without four years of Bible college without one schmism of Greek and Hebrew. Amen. Nothing. The only degree you need is a BA. Amen. Born again. Amen. The rest of it will take care of itself. William Tyndale. William Tyndale translated one of the early English translations. And English was very primitive at that point in time. And he lived in England. And England and the scholarship in England was just paramount at this time. And and uh, they uh, they they were all you know very uh, very very suspect of of anybody uh, wanting to put the Bible in a common language. They wanted to hold the Bible back for their own, like I talked last week, for their own control of people. And William Tyndale put one of the first English translations out of the seven that the final form came. Uh, your King James Bible, in fact, when the King James translator translated your 1611, they had Tyndale's Bible on the table along with Wycliffe's. And uh, he was in a meeting and he was talking about what he was going to do. And everybody was giving him a tough time and how that the Bible had to be kept in the churches and it wasn't for the lay people. And he looked out the window and across the road was a boy plowing a field with a mule. And he looked out there and he says, Gentlemen, he says, someday that plow boy will know more about God and the Word of God than all the scholars in England. Hey, hey. And it came true. 
you can have more understanding when it comes to God and the Word of God and all the scholarship in this world. You know why? Because scholarship will not do a thing for you. You've got to get God's mind. It's no wonder the Christian educated world hates that Bible. Look at the last part of the verse. Whethersoever it turneth, it prospereth. You know, in life, the value systems we have of things that we hold dear in time, they'll lose their value. They always do. You go out and buy a $60,000 car, boy, it's beautiful, it's great, got everything in it you want. You drive it off the lot, you just lost $5,000 on it. You turn it right back around and brought it in and said, I want to sell it back to you, you get five, $6,000 less for it. You keep it three or four years, it's worth half of what you got. And you, you know, I got my Ford Ranger, I think it's a, a, a two, 99, I think it is. I've had it for I don't know how many years, maybe a 2000, I don't know. And it's, it's only got 80 some thousand miles on it, but I try to take that sucker in, I get a dollar for it. <laughs> Good truck. Going to the grandkids. You'll see Maddie fooling wheel around in it. And then you get the Macy here when grows up and gets tall enough to reach the pedals, she'll get it too. <laughs> but in life, the value systems we have with the things that we hold dear, they all, they all depreciate. These four gifts that God gives us will never lose their value. In fact, in life, they just get better. You know, our precious commodities today in our own life, they rise and fall on the market, based on the market. You buy gold today, and you get it for $800. Maybe tomorrow it'll be $1,200. And then it'll go back to $800, $400. It fluctuates up and down. The things that the value of God's value system never fluctuates. It only gets better. But it never decreases. You know, in the Bible, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 the blessings that come from the Word of God are incredible. In the Bible, you'll find it that what I call the great contrast chapters. One, one is like Leviticus 26, I think. The other one, I think, is Deuteronomy 11. There's a couple of them in there. And the whole chapter will be built around the blessings and the cursings of God. You maybe have 30 verses in it, and the first 15 verses will talk about the blessings of God that He's going to give you if you do right. And then right in the middle of that chapter, it'll say, But... <laughs> And then the rest of that thing is if you don't do what, here's going to happen. It's incredible. When you have these gifts in your life, the blessings, and you use them, you understand them, you find them, as I said earlier, you, you, you understand them and you use them, it changes everything in your life. It changes everything in your family. You will never look at the world again because you're now looking out through a value system that the world doesn't have. It's going to lift your value system higher. It's going to lift your kid's value system higher. Right. Somebody parents say, well, I'm really worried about my kids going to public school and I'm afraid that they're going to get with their own crowd. How do you do that? Raise their value system. Amen. Make their value system your value system. Maybe that's the problem. Change their value system. Have them look at those things and simply say, no thanks. The dead end street. The life of a Christian, Psalms 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, or sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is the law of the Lord, and in that law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the river waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, and his leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Wherever it turns, wherever it goes. That's a value system that you cannot be. Getting better and better as you years roll on in your Christian life. The value of this gift just keeps giving. And you keep making good investments. Look at verse 9. 
He that covereth the transgression speaketh love. But he that repeateth the matter separateth very friend. Now we're going to switch gears just a little bit here. <clears throat> now this verse is a great one with a powerful practical application. Doctrinally, obviously this will be the tribulation and people are turning in their friends to the Antichrist crowd and the CIA and the FBI and all that crowd. But inspirationally, it's, it's, it's really important. The goal of any church, the goal of Christianity, and the goal of each and every one of us should be fixing problems instead of making them worse. One of restitution. Nobody has the ability, I've never understood that. Well, I do. Nobody has the ability to fix a problem better than a Christian does. But why do they not do that? Why are we so bent on destroying things that we could fix? When someone makes a mistake, like we all don't, and they go through a tough time in life, why is it that we have to play Friday night football where the guy just got tackled and everybody piled on? Why is nobody lifting that person up? doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable. It doesn't mean that you don't, you don't deal with the issue. But it means that you understand that everybody makes mistakes. And the person who holds something against somebody that made a mistake here has many mistakes in their own life, I can guarantee you, that they got away with. Now, I get it. Sometimes you can't fix things. I get it. When I deal with marital couples and marital problems and situations, or I deal with problems between two Christians, or maybe just a Christian has got himself into a mess, I always tell them, I say, look, there should be nothing that two Christians can't work out together. The only reason they won't work it out together is because one or the other don't want to work it out. But there should be nothing that two Christians can't work out. If we have a problem together, there should be nothing that you and I can't work out. Because the love of God that we have in I should supersede any problem we have. And we have to be willing because we love God more and we love the work of God more to put aside our little private differences for the cause of Christ that He can go forward. Not us going forward. But you just don't find that today. You just don't find it today. And I realize that in many cases, you can't fix things. Time, anger, bitterness, all that creeps in, and pretty soon, you know, you have a situation that could be fixed, but the people won't let it get fixed. And as a Christian, we should always be on the side of restitution and not making a situation worse by spreading it around. Now, I know that there are things that need to be dealt with and there needs things to be discussed. Let me tell you something. I've had situations, we've had situations in this church with a family or a situation that had to be dealt with, uh, and I would call the deacons in, 40 of them or so, and their wives, uh, or the finance committee or whoever, and I would bring the leadership in and I would explain to them, here's the situation we're facing, this is what it is, this is what we're dealing, this is the way we're going to handle it. Now, I'm telling you this for one reason. That if you hear something, you have the right answer to give people. I'm not telling you this so you can go out and tell somebody else what's happening. You know what? In every case that I've had in this church, not one man. And sometimes it was just a man and I said, you don't even tell your wife this. In not one case has any man or woman ever went out of there and said something against what I told them to do. You know why? Because for the bulk of this church, it's about restitution. <coughs> it's about making things right, not making things worse. That's what it's all about. A child of God who loves God and the Word of God will overlook and cover something with the blood of Christ to keep the cause of Christ from undue suffering. 
It doesn't mean that you don't deal with it. It means that you don't tell the world about it. You know, things changed in the last 50 years, haven't they? It used to be that gossip was just from person to person. One old lady telling another old lady. <laughs> One guy telling another guy. But now the social media, Facebook, brought slamming people and slander and gossip to a whole new level. I mean, it's just riff with it from one end to the other. It seems like that people are so stupid that they think that when they put something on there that nobody else is going to see it. The whole world sees it. And it's on there forever. But social media today with the Facebooks and MySpace and In Your Face and all those other things, you know, they just, they, they have destroyed more people than all the bullets in the history of the world. But you see, a strong Christian... A strong kisser has a higher value system than that. They don't, they don't get caught into that. He has wisdom or she has wisdom and understanding. He, 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 he's, not, he, he's only interested in fixing a mess, not making a bigger one. And in dealing with problems, I follow a simple rule. I follow a simple rule in dealing with critical situations. My rule is this. Keep the circle of information as tight as possible. Never let it get outside a perimeter. Allowing sensitive information to get outside that perimeter will always make the situation work. Hey, my job, your job. The job of this church is one of restitution, not distribution. We're to restore, not destroy. We're to take situations that where people are hurting, whether they were the cause of it or not, whether they did something stupid or not, I'll look for the first hand to buy a lunch of anybody here that never did anything stupid. Knowing that I don't have any money in my pocket today to buy a lunch and knowing I wouldn't have to anyhow. But in every church there seems to be the ministers of information. People that have a corner on everything. And people who will cause more issues with people than they ever fix. Look at the last part of verse 9. But he that Repeat of the matter, separate of friends. You know, and, this is, and I say what I'm about to say, I say all of this to, a, to my shame in Christianity. And I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I, I'm a pastor of a church, and I represent other pastors in churches. We're all kind of like a, like a union type thing, you know, and people have a tendency. But I'm telling you, uh, I, I'm embarrassed today. In most churches today, there exists a real aspect of just destroying people. People who have the ability to help people, they're always at odds. You'll have a church that has people that want to help people. They don't have a crowd over here that all they look is for the dirt to destroy people. And it, it, it's, a, it's a divide and conquer thing. And, and, I, and I know my own world of dealing with people. I deal with them all the time. Have for, for 40 some years. How many of God's people over the years have gotten burned and trashed by the crowd that will always make things worse instead of just covering them with praying with love and the principles of the Word of God. These will be the people that we looked a couple of weeks ago in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28, uh, and through uh, and 28, who, who sow strife and whisper to others to separate friends. You know, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, that great passage that most of you are familiar with, it's the seven things that God hates. And it talks about a proud look and a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood and a heart with wicked imagination, feet swift to mischief, 
false witness. And the last thing the Bible says, the number seven, makes it a makes it a abomination. You know what it is? It's the number one sin of God's people. You talk about the sins of the shame, the number one sin is the one sin that makes the six an abomination, showing discord among the brethren. That's right. That's the man of Proverbs seventeen nine that we're talking about. Now I want to be clear on something. Last week, I said this, on occasions I've made this statement that uh, here in this church, if you want to do right, nobody here will hurt you. I say that because people get burned, and then they tend to think that all churches are just like the church that just burned them. I get that. And maybe most of them are. But I mean, come on, you go out to eat at a restaurant, and you get food poisoning, get violently sick. Do you never not go out to another restaurant again? No. It just sure, it proves the point that there are some really bad restaurants. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you today, there are some really bad churches out there. Yeah. And there are churches that will take whatever mistakes you make and hold it against you, use it against you, and that just should not be. It just should not be. Now, <clears throat> I want to say this. Our church is no different than any other church. <clears throat> We're certainly not perfect. No church is. I had a guy ask me one time. <clears throat> we were out with a group of pastors. And this guy was... I didn't trust this guy for anything. <coughs> no, <clears throat> he was a... <clears throat> he was a fulfillment of my favorite verse. <laughs> Never accept a shirt off of a naked man. <laughs> you think that went through a lot of impact in that <laughs> A naked man doesn't have a shirt. So if he says he's going to give you a shirt, you better look closer. He hadn't got a shirt. And we were sitting there talking, and he was he was kind of guiding the discussion. And I was just, and he looked over at, at some of us, and he says, "Brother Bob," he says, "Let me ask the question." He said, "We're all pastors here." He said, "What would you say is your greatest weakness?" Well, that's a, you know, I can see right now whatever I just said is going to be in the Baptist Bible Fellowship. Newspaper the next week, you know, and I and I and I you know, and I'm smarter than those things because I know how that thing goes. And I looked right at him and I said, you know what? That's a great question. Here's the answer to that: If I don't stay in the Word of God and stay in that book every day, I'm as susceptible to every sin than any other man is. Amen. That's right. That's a good answer. Uh-huh. <laughs> he didn't like it, but it was a good answer. <laughs> Now, you know what? This church is no different than any other church. You're not all super pious spiritual people. You're human beings with flesh and family just like every other church out there. And we have the, we have the ability to do any damage to anybody, to hurt anybody, just like the other churches do, if we get out of that book. The day you get some liberal preacher up here that gets you out of the book that keeps tearing the hide off of you and starts giving you the mamsy pamsy, you're in trouble. I enforce two prime directives here. We have a Bible, we believe it, and we follow it. My job is to see that issues don't get out of control. I don't know why a pastor can't understand that. My job, the buck stops here. My job is to make sure that issues don't get out of control. You deal with it. 
It isn't about, well, I don't want to offend. You deal with it. If the Bible is what it is, that, and you believe it, then you've got to follow it. Amen. What good is it if you say you have it and you believe it if you're not willing to follow it when you need to follow it? Amen. Following the Bible and dealing with people about it is not always going to be pretty. You try to make it pretty. And the second directive here, we're here to help you, not hurt you. A New Testament Bible-based church should be the safest place on earth for you. It should be your sanctuary from the world. Amen. It should be your seclusion when you're hurting. That's right. It ought to be your place of comfort yes. when you find it nowhere else. Absolutely. You ought to walk in that door no matter what your day is. And the moment you come through those doors, you ought to feel the love of God. And you ought to know that no matter what my day is, no matter what it's going to be this morning, no matter what it's going to be this afternoon, right now, I'm okay. Yes. And it's the pastor's job. It's the job of leadership in any church to make it so. Any pastor, any pastor should be the champion of his people in protecting them. You come to this church, you get an automatic bona fide insurance policy. Nobody will hurt you. And if somebody tries to, you don't have to worry about it. I'll deal with it. That's right. <clears throat> you look around you today and you see a well-oiled, when I say well-oiled, Holy Spirit oil, Holy Spirit of God, functioning New Testament Bible-based church. But for 13 years now, and that's how long we've been together, I've been building people to make our church different from all the other churches out there. I've said it many, many times. I've never never, never tried to not pretend that, uh, that I wanted to be like everybody else. I want this church and the people in it, I want it to be everything that God is. You have to, you can look all day long, all night long, and you can scope it out all you want, and it'll be hard to find something we don't do Bible based on the Word of God. But we went through a maturing process. We went through a building process, just like other churches. The difference is here is we have a book that we believe we operate by the Word of God. We as we grew and got we had we had we had we faced the same issues. We had individuals in our church who tried to cause strife. We had families that tried to divide other families. No church is, is doesn't have to deal with that. We most definitely from time to time had satanic implants dropped in for the purpose of just trying to destroy what God was doing. We had women that tried to start a gossip train, you know, stirring up strife, lying about folks. We had a group of ladies that went out to lunch and their whole purpose was to get together and, and instead of eating their lunch, just digested everybody in the church, including the preacher. But it never lasted long. You know why? Because they hit a brick wall. Yes. They may have found three or four people that were sensitive to them, that were in the same boat that we were, but boy, when they stepped outside that small type perimeter, they hit a brick wall. Mm -hmm. Nothing like a church filled with people who follow the Bible to shut them down and shut them up. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that today our church is, is where it's at. And I accomplished this a couple of ways. First of all, 
by confronting issues when they need to be confronted. I learned a long time ago, the longer you let something go, the worse it's going to get. That's true. And something here today that's just in a little ball will have legs and be all over the floor by tomorrow. So the first thing I did is I fix it when I see it. Second thing I did is the one-on-one -on -one we have with so many times together in the Bible. You get to see and get first-hand principles. It's like you should have seen all the singles ministry yesterday. It was absolutely the question they're asking. They're getting it. They're getting it. The third thing was Bible study on Sunday morning. Preaching the principles to live by. Enforcing the things and letting you see the actual examples. And, and the fourth thing that I think was probably the greatest aspect that pulled it all together was the people ministry. Now, i got to tell you, a lot of you people who want to get caught up in the people ministry, you got the tapes, you're going to go back. That first two tapes were scared the fire out of you. Yes. You haven't heard them already. I put the fear of God in them. They had to sign a contract. See, these people were going to go places with me to whom much is given, much is required. Now, you don't have to do it because we're already in it and, and they're solidified and I'm trying to, we've we got to move it now. But when they first got in, those first 80 people, they had to sign a contract. The first two weeks, all I did was tell them what was going to happen to them if they didn't follow the rules. I put the fear of God in them, brother. And I'll tell you what, fear of God is still in them. Amen. They took it to heart. They understood that if you're going to give somebody sensitive information that they're going to use to whom much is given, much is required. This wasn't something for your average Christian that just wanted to have a, a token uh, relationship with the Bible. This was for men and women who actually wanted to dedicate their lives working with people to get the problems. And I was going to give them every human profile that they could have at their disposal. But boy, I'll tell you what. They realized that there was some accountability that came along with it. A church needs to be a family. Amen. Needs to have fun, like this morning. That was fun. Needs to laugh. We've already looked at it. Uh, normally, our YouTube hits are about 60, 70, 80. We've got 6,400. <laughs> Word is spreading about you and football across the <laughs> It needs. We, we have a lot of fun here. We get our work done. We're serious about But we have fun. I, I can't stand a church where everybody looks like they were baptized in dill pickle juice. <laughs> you know, you, 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 we're here to have a good time. The Spirit of God. We're, we're a family. We love each other. We kid each other. We laugh at each other. Uh, we, we, we make fun of each other. And we laugh. And we, we talk. And we just, we just, we just love each other. Nothing, nothing gets between us. That family spirit. Romans 15, 1 says, Ye that are strong, not the barely infirmities of the weak. That's where the ministry needs to be built on. So I say, nobody here will ever hurt you. You may hurt yourself, but nobody here will. I can personally guarantee that. But know this, I deal with issues by the Bible. I don't know any other way. We're here to help people, not hurt them. We do it by the book. Baptist churches today are famous for shooting their own wounded. We will not do that here. I told my people, when you start to work with people, I grade dealing with people's problems in three categories. 
I said, some people, I call them uh, band-aids and methylene. They just got little ouchies on their knees, elbows, where they fell down. Doesn't take a lot of work. Just a little band-aid and some methylene with curacone. Second level is broken legs and appendectomies. That's a little more serious. Nothing. Fatal. But you've got to know how to go in and take on an appendix instead of broken arms. Some people's problems are a little higher than that. Then the third level is brain transplants or heart transplants. Amen. That's the third level where you really get into it. People come in in those different modes. We've got to be able to be here for them, to give them what they need. I think of back there in, in, in 1 Samuel 22.1 when David was running from Saul. And the Bible says he went down to the cave of Adullam. And they're in that cave, and the Bible says that God brought all the people that were distressed, all the people that were hurting, all the people that were broken, all the people that were in debt, all the people that were struggling, down to David in that cave, and he ministered to them. That's what a church needs to be. It needs to be a place for you to heal, if you need to heal. It needs to be a place for you to help others to heal. It needs to be a place that, that it's the safest place in your world, that when you go to out all day long, all week long, it's some of the worst stuff you've ever been in your life. But when you come to church, brother, it is everything, the safest place that you could ever be in. Amen. And, I, and I've seen this in all churches. People who stay friends with that crowd to try to disrupt churches and they try to walk the middle of the road and be friends with both, you know. Uh, you just can't, I mean, they don't. They lack the moral courage to stand. Somebody does something that's very bonafidely wrong and they just walk the middle. They still stay friends with them, still stay buddies with them, still do things with them. I've seen it all my life. You know what God does? God puts you on the shelf just like He does them. Yeah. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me. Amen. There's some things in Christianity in the church that you have to take your stand for. You have to find the moral courage, the moral fiber to take your stand. And yes, it will cost you some relationships. Yes, it will. It's better costing you relationship with them than it is the cost of relationship with God in His book. Now verse 10 says, moving through here, A reproof entereth more into a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. Uh, you reprove a wise man, that's because he'll take it, he'll grow, he'll grow through it, grow from it, change, and make himself better. Reprove a fool. You can say it to him a thousand times and he'll never hear it. You can beat him half to death and he'll just go back to his own slop, like Second Peter 2.2. Dog to his vomit, the sow to her mower. And I've seen it, I've seen it, having meeting after meeting, going over the same stuff. Sometimes I feel like I should make a tape and just play it. <laughs> But when a man or a woman loves God and has the conviction based on principles and they get off track, one sermon, one remark, gets them back. The Word of God working in your life. A fool just never gets it. He has no understanding or he has no wisdom. And within that verse, here's the key to it all. Verse 10 says, A reproof entereth. For you to fix problems, the Word of God's got to get on the inside of you. You'll never fix your problem by dealing with the outside of you. You fix your problem by getting on the inside of you. You've got to let that reproof sink in. It's got to get into your heart, into your conscience, into your mind. That's the only way it's going to change it. And I'll tell you something else. Don't spend so much time trying to fix others, but I'm trying to fix yourself. And a reason why a fool will never get it fixed, whether it be his marriage, his family, or his personal life, he'll just never let the rebuke sink in. His conscience will not allow it to happen. 
Well, verse 11, this is our last verse. We've got a few minutes here. We want to get this one in here. Verse 11 says, An evil man seeketh only rebellion. Therefore a cruel messenger shall be sent against him. Now that's a, this is an incredible verse. Doctrinally again, we know it's the, a reference to the Antichrist. It's dealing with rebellion. The first real type of the Antichrist in the Bible is in, in Genesis 10 with Nimrod. His name means son of rebellion. Now this great verse, it goes along with verse 10 we just looked at. And it says that the root of all... You want to see this. It says that the root of all sin starts with rebellion. And you want to go back to Isaiah 14.31 in the original sin where the devil said, I will be like the Most High God. And he rebelled against God's authority. In society, when a man commits a crime, goes to prison for it, or at least commits it, he does it because he has no respect for authority and he rebels against it. When a child in your family gets in a mess and gives the parents trouble, it's because they're rebellious against that parent's authority. Now when a Christian gets out of fellowship with God, it's because of the rebellion against what the Bible says, the authority. Now do you see what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, why it is absolutely so important for you to have an absolute final authority in your life in the Word of God? If you don't have an authority, you've got anarchy. And I'm going to tell you, you can have 20 different authorities, but you can only have one final authority. And I've said it many, many times. I believe the King James Bible 1611 uh, is the final authority for all things in faith and practice. Amen. Faith, what you believe, and practice, what you do. You see it in the book of Judges. Book of Judges, Judges 21-25. Uh, the most messed up book in the Bible. There was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. They had no final authority. Our country today, we are facing the judgment of God because of our rebellion against Him and His Word. Nobody even gets it. We think the problem is ISIS today. problem isn't ISIS. We think the problem is, is, is radical Muslim. No, it's not. We think it's jihad. No, it isn't. We think it's Al-Qaeda. No, it isn't. Hey, back in the 40s and the 50s, we faced two empires. Germany, three really. Germany, Italy, and Japan. Three quarters of the world was against one nation, and we whipped them fair. What's the difference between then and now? The difference is, back then, we still had a Bible and a God we trusted in and believed. Today, we don't. So now, thank God we're only up against, what, 30,000 people? ISIS got the greatest country in the world on its heels? When we defeated Japan, Germany, Mussolini, and Italy? Nobody sees that. Nobody asked himself, wow, how could just 50, 60, 70 years ago we take on three quarters of the world, one nation, and whip them? And now 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 people, one small group, got America on the run. I'll tell you why, because we got a much bigger problem than those guys. Our problem is not ISIS or Al-Qaeda or radical Muslims. Our problem is we got God against us. Because of our rebellion against His authority and His word. There's a great verse in Proverbs 28.5. It says, Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. One of the greatest verses in all the Bible for the times that you and I live in. We as a country are so far from God today, we have no understanding of why we are dealing with and going through the things that we're going through. But I do... Why? Because they that seek the Lord understand all things. You've got the mind of Christ. You've got a book that lays it out for you. 
One of the greatest verses in all the Bible that shows God's wrath on this country is found in the book of Isaiah. It's stuck back there in Isaiah chapter 28 and nobody's ever seen it. I've never heard a message preached on it. You want understanding of God and America? Do you? Do you really want to understand what's going on in America and how God figures into it? Do you? Well, I'll tell you something. Joe Osteen can't figure it out. <laughs> Billy Graham missed it. Pope Francis couldn't find it with a laser beam and a flashlight. All the evangelicals are as lost to this truth as could be, and the Baptist churches today are so broke and totally busted when it comes to anything in the Bible. And you look across this country to our national leaders, Obama, O'Reilly, uh, the five on the Fox News, Trump, Clinton, Rush Limbaugh, they don't have a clue. No, it takes some little guy like you. It takes some little gal like you who's a nobody down here, but you're everything up there with that book. Amen. It takes somebody like you who just loves God and His Word and simply believes every word of it. He knows and understands God's judgment. He's understand it. He, he sees it. He's got an absolute. And here it comes. You heard it first right here. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 63. Here it comes. You want the verse? You want insight? You want understanding? Here it is. And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, and ye shall be plucked off from the land whether thou goest to possess it. Historically, that's Israel. Inspirationally, it's any nation that has that book the way we had it and rejects it. God bless America, land that I love. Stand before her and guide her with the light with a with a night through the night with a light from above. Are you kidding me? What planet do you live on? That verse said God's rejoicing and the demise of America. Now we've lost our perspective. We're like they are in Acts chapter 17, verse 23, the Athenian, where he saw a sign to the great unknown God. We don't have a clue. Oh, and they don't want to hear it. Preacher gets on there and says 911 was the judgment of God on this America. Boy, they go crazy. Every time there's a hurricane or a tornado or a tsunami, any preacher gets up and says God's judgment on this world and this country. Oh, they don't want to hear it. The terrorist attacks all around America and all around the world and a government won't even deal with it. Yeah. Hey, let me tell you a headline, folks. All through that Bible, God has used Muslim nations to chastise His people when they got out of fellowship and left Him. Right. You take the book of Judges. Just take the book of Judges. In the first three chapters, he lays out the apostasy of the nation of Israel. How desperately wicked they are. And then the favorite phrase to the rest of that book, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Over and over and over again. You know what he did? In chapter 3, he put them into the hands of the king of Mesopotamia. You know what he did in chapter 3? At the end of the chapter, he gave them over to Moab. You know what he did in chapter 4 and 5? He gave them over to Canaan. You know what he did in chapter 6, 7, and 8? He gave them to the Midianites. You know what he did in chapter 9? He gave them to the Shechemites. You know what he did in chapter 10? Uh, 10? He gave them to the Amorites. You know what he did again in chapter 10? At the end of the chapter, he gave them to Syria. In chapter 11 and 12, he and, and chapter 12 and 8, he gave them to the uh, to Ammon and those groups. He gave them in chapter chapter 12 to the uh, Ephraimite. Then he gave it to the Philistines in chapter 13. Twelve times in one book. Just 225 years. Twelve times.
times he turned them over to pre-Muslim nations to be judged. We're not even into Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Odiah and Zephaniah and the rest of the books of the prophets to Israel. Amen. Listen. This country is in rebellion against God. Last Thursday night, somebody asked a question in Matthew chapter 5 about the salt, where it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, and I laid that out for you. And then they asked a question about the second part of the verse. And I said I'd answer it today because they want to ruin the message. The second part of that verse says this. Wherewith shall it be, uh, shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing if it loses its savor. It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under the foot of men. America, which was the greatest nation, with the greatest preachers, with the greatest Bible, with the greatest soul-winning endeavor the world has ever seen, have now come to be an apostate nation who denies God, wants to take God off the money, kick God out of the schools, and do everything against God in the Bible, recognize gay and same-sex marriages, go against every principle in that Bible, and then still got the guts to stand down there and say, God bless America. God this, this nation is in rebellion against Almighty God. And listen to me. He has sent a cruel messenger against us. And they are going to trample us under the feet of men. Right. And there's no election. No political party. No religion. No ecumenical movement. No bumper stickers. Pray for peace. Yeah. <laughs> Honk if you love Jesus. Are going to stay the hand of God. Amen. The judgment of God is upon this country. And man has no clue. And you and me who have these four gifts that God has provided for us through those gifts get God's mind and we get wisdom and understanding and we understand all things. And we face today looking at it knowing exactly what we're up against. I don't say that to make you afraid. Nothing to be afraid of. Greater is He that's in you that's in the world. Perfect love captives out fear. I don't, this is not a doomsday message. This is not a, oh, go out of here with your tail between your legs. Oh, woe is me. There's no hope. Hey, the hope's coming, folks. The hope's coming. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You're just putting your hope in the wrong things. No, for us it's to use, once we have the understanding and wisdom, for us it's to use the time God has given us to effectively reach the world around us. The book never changes. The message never changes. But the method by which you take it changes. Sensitivity to the times that we're in. In relationship to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding is Colossians, that great book that mirrors the Laodicean church period. Understanding the issues that we face in Colossians chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Making this church what God intended it to be. In a world of danger. In a world of fear. In a world of absolute chaos. In a world of uncertainty. In a world of despair. In a world of fear. In a world of everybody wondering what's going to happen next. Making this church the safest, most secure place on earth. For a person to find not only the love of God. But the love of God's people because they've experienced the love of God. Reaching out in these dark times for people who are looking for a light. Helping them. Caring not where they've been. What they've done. Taking them the way God took you and me. And then realizing that our job through the love of God is one of restitution. And understanding that we're each other's protector today 
We're each other's champion. That's right. We're each other's standing for the other. Yeah. There'll be times when you're weak. There'll be times when you have medical issues, emotional issues, and you will be weak. Yeah. And the person sitting right next to you, behind you, in front of you, will have to be your strength. There'll be times when they're weak. And they, they, they're fragile. And you'll have to be your strength. I, I tell people all the time this illustration. I tell it to husband and wife having problems. I say, you know how you get out of the problem you're in? Here's what you do. Imagine that you and your wife are up on a mountaintop hit, hitchhiking. <laughs> yeah, hiking. <laughs> and you're, you're up there climbing up on the mountains and he falls and he breaks this leg. You go to help him and you fall and you break this leg. Now you're way up on a mountain getting nightfall, going to get cold, nothing to eat. How do you get off that mountain? You both got two broken legs. Here's how you do it. You stand side by side. You put the two broken legs together. You strap those two broken legs individually then you strap them together. And then you put your arms around each other and hold on to each other and you use your two good legs on the outside and you get off that mountain. Right. You know how you get out of the problem you're in? You let somebody strap themselves to you with the Word of God, put their arms around you, tie whatever's broken to what they've got that's strong and get out of that mesh. That's what a church should be.